The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. The book of Isaiah has got 66 chapters. We have 66 books in our English Bible. Many have pointed to this book as encapsulating the entirety of Scripture, the entire message from brokenness to redemption. The first half of the book is often called the book of judgment. The second half of the book often called the book of consolation. That second book opens up in Isaiah 40 with a voice that we've become familiar with. Comfort, comfort, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Get up on a high mountain, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Proclaim, our God reigns. Behold your God, Isaiah chapter 40. So you get the echoes of, or the anticipations of the voice of John the Baptist ringing, Behold, he who comes in the name of the Lord. Behold the Lamb who takes on the sins of the world. The Gospel of Isaiah. The judgment and transformation of Zion. The judgment of the vineyard and Emmanuel. The city of man versus the city of God. Trusting nations versus trusting the word of the Lord. Comfort and redemption for Zion and the world. And keeping the Sabbath and the new creation. We're going to focus in today on this one. Isaiah 5-12. through In order to get our hands around a little bit better what Matthew is doing in citing this book in the early stories of Jesus. Here's Matthew. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name God with us. Emmanuel. Or Matthew chapter 3. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The intrusion of the reign of God that we've been hoping for through the ages. When He would enter in and let light shine into the darkness. When He would make all things right. When He would overcome our own problem. Sin and its separation from God. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make His paths straight. And ironically, the way of the Lord for John the Baptist becomes focused on the person of Jesus. Not just Yahweh, but the manifestation of Yahweh incarnate, Christ. And then Matthew opens up Jesus' ministry this way. Leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why did He do it? God was working. It wasn't random. God was moving Him in order to fulfill Scripture. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light is dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So a virgin conceiving God with us all the way up to the King of Kings entering in and bringing light to a people bound up in darkness. All of these come out of this section of Isaiah, the judgment of the vineyard and Emmanuel. So open up to Isaiah chapter 5. As you do, I want to pray one more time. God, you have been at work throughout time. And this day you've brought us together in order to 
know you more. You've given us a book that is clear, that is pointed, that anticipated things that we are seeing and have seen fulfilled. Give us eyes that we might see. May we glory in your Son, the Son of the living God. Help us as we walk through and try to understand what Isaiah is doing and how what he says points to your Messiah, the Anointed One, who has brought us hope and help. May He be magnified in our midst today. May You help those who need a counselor find one. Those who need a God who is unchanging and unswerving find such a Father. Those who need all power in heaven and on earth to work on their behalf, may they experience You in that way. You are God with us in Your Son. We need You with us now and to the end of the age. We praise You for Jesus who has all authority in heaven and on earth and who will never leave us or forsake us. Encourage our hearts by the story of the Gospel today. In Your name we pray. Amen. We begin in Isaiah chapter 5. A song. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. We're going to begin with chapter 5, the song of the vineyard, which sets kind of an introductory lens for this unit. Often, building off the Garden of Eden, Israel is portrayed as a vineyard that's supposed to be fruitful. And instead of being fruitful, it is fruitless. And so God enters in and He cleans out His vineyard. Indeed, He's going to burn it. But out of the burning will rise a new shoot. And that shoot is the Messiah. And then we get grafted into this shoot by the Spirit of the living God, by the Spirit of the resurrected Christ, and all of a sudden we begin to bear the fruit of the vineyard. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is nothing other than the ultimate fulfillment of of God's garden working rightly. That is the Garden of Eden that we are now a part of, flourishing in our soul and expanding to fill the earth. Fruitfulness. So the vineyard will give rise to Isaiah's call narrative. And many of us read the first part, here am I, send me, and think that that is the end. But I think we may see something in that call narrative Isaiah's calling to mission, to mission work, to ministry that we've never seen before. I want us to consider how it is that John can say, when Isaiah saw the Lord seated on the throne, he saw Jesus. What's going on there? Then, Isaiah's mission is not one of hope, it's one of judgment, as we're going to see, but a judgment that will ultimately climax in exile, overflowing in the coming of the Messiah, the offspring that we've been anticipating since Genesis 3.15. And then we're going to see judgment on Judah, judgment on Israel, and it's in the judgment on Judah, that's the southern kingdom where David's kingdom is, judgment on Judah is where we get Isaiah... Um, 7 verse 14, the mention of the virgin conceiving in the Emmanuel, God with us. And then we also get Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, which is where a people caught up in darkness will see a great light and God will bestow on um, this one from Judah, will bestow on him a kingdom. And He will give him a new name, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's in this unit. And then in the Declaration of Judgment on Israel, the Northern Kingdom, all of a sudden toward the end of it, in chapter 11, verse 1, everything opens up wide and we see the Spirit of the Lord being upon a small shoot. A shoot that is rising out of a desolated garden that has been burned by the judgment of God, and that small shoot is 
ultimately the Messiah. And through him, global missions happens. And we see all the nations of the earth gathering. And then it cites Exodus 15, which is the song of the sea after Israel goes through the waters. The waters part. They fall down then on Egypt. Israel is on the other side of the sea. They sing, oh, we have a man of war. God has been with us. He's given us great victory. There is no God like our God. And then in Isaiah chapter 12, we see the same song being sung, but it's not of the original Exodus, it's of the new Exodus. A people who have been brought out from the nations and gathered, sins forgiven, reconciled with their God, ultimately through the work of the Messiah. So that's this unit, and we're going to walk through it as best as we can in our window today. So we begin in the song of the vineyard. So look with me in your Bibles. In Isaiah chapter 5, this is not an easy text, this unit, trying to understand what exactly is Matthew doing? How does he focus it in on the Messiah? Because he's going to talk a lot about some specifics in history, Isaiah's history, 700 years before Jesus even comes about. And he's going to promise certain things that are going to happen, it seems as though, in Isaiah's lifetime. And yet, some of the things he says seem much bigger, impossible to be fulfilled in his lifetime. The details that are given for this Redeemer. And it gets our eyes off of Isaiah's day and begins to look at Isaiah's problems as merely a picture of a world problem. And the Redeemer that he will see is merely a small anticipation of the more ultimate Redeemer that all of us have seen. And so now we read this book not as a hope for seeing Isaiah's problems overcome only, but as pointing to the one who has overcome our own. Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing of my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower and in the midst of it, and he hewed it out of wine, out of a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but there was none. It didn't yield what he anticipated. Instead of something cultivated, it yielded something wild. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? The vineyard is Israel, and God is the vine dresser. He's done all that he could, and yet it has not produced. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured, no longer having protection. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. Images of the curse. And I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. Famine. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, all that there was was bloodshed. He looked for righteous, but behold, there was only an outcry. That's the people of God. Instead of looking like a people of God that are just flourishing in their hunger for him, and their treasuring of him, and their following of him, they're looking like the world. They're looking wild. They're looking what is out, supposed to be growing outside of the garden of God, not what's to be growing inside of the garden of God. So God declares, look at verse 13, My people will go into exile. Why? Because they have no knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. The grave is ever-expanding because really soon, those that I once called my people will become judged. The nobility of Jerusalem, her multitude, will go down. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. God always moves in that direction. 
But Yahweh of hosts is exalted in justice. The holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. He's holy, and He shows Himself holy in righteousness. Righteousness is God's passion for right order in the world. He's on the top, and everything else is under Him. And what the fall did was twist that, so that now, even though God was truly supreme, He... The world was no longer at peace. It wasn't rest. It wasn't shalom. The world was in friction with God. And so God begins a process of working righteousness. That is, reestablishing the right order that was set in the first seven days of creation. He is passionate to preserve and display right order. And so we could even define righteousness as God's passion for His own glory. Because he's always at the top of the order. And so the question in the Bible is, how will God reestablish right order? And ultimately, he will do it through an offspring of the woman. Who will go head to head with the major power that is against this right order. And in Christ, Paul says in Romans 1.16, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's passion for right order is manifest through the person of His Son. It's in Christ that He is working to reestablish right order in the world, including in our hearts. Where we are no longer in animosity and friction with Him, but rather we're surrendered, like Pastor Jason was calling us to today. Now notice verse 17, a little hint of hope. Lambs shall graze in their pasture as God establishes himself in righteousness. Nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. We're going to see these little images of hope throughout Isaiah. They're they're pointing ahead, but it's not where we are now. And it's designed, he's just a preacher. I mean, it's such a gift. Rather than wiping out rebels like rebels deserve, instead God sends them a preacher to call call them back to himself. That's what Isaiah is. He's calling them back, and yet he's going to do so in a very ironic way because their hearts are not changed. God does not change Israel's hearts. And so, if hard-hearted people hear good news and they refuse to treat it as good news, their judgment is all the more Severe. Look at verse 24. As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, so I'm in chapter 5, 24. As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so the root of this people will be as rottenness. Their blossom will go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord. God's instructions are not burdened. Burdensome, they're not supposed to be. It's the path of life. It's, it's the white line on here, sorry, over here for you guys. The white line and the yellow line saying, stick within this boundary. Don't drive over to the right or to the left, to the right or to the left. Danger. God's law keeps us on the path of life. But in moving away from this law to the right or to the left, They have put themselves in the danger of being burned. They've despised the word of the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against his people. He stretched out his hand against them. He struck them, and the mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still, is stretched out still. Verse 30, they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, all darkness. It's into darkness that we need light, that the light will shine brightest. God creates a world where he ordains that darkness be. He ordains that darkness be in order that He might magnify something about Himself that we would not see as clearly if there wasn't darkness. 
If there wasn't sin to be overcome, we would not understand God's wrath, nor would we understand His mercy. If there wasn't a sea of people separated from God, we wouldn't understand His absolute authority and justification to elect some and not others. Creating a world where darkness exists brings about the need for the cross, and it's at the cross that all of a sudden God is going to be magnified in ways we would never understand Him to be. For eternity, we will celebrate the depths of the love God has shown us, the way that He's disclosed Himself to us at the cross. In a way that had we not had sin to be overcome in our own lives, if we didn't have suffering that need, that, from which we needed healing and repose, we wouldn't celebrate the good news And just as God let all the world enter into darkness, and then He set up Israel to be a light to the nations, now He lets Israel go into darkness as a small picture of what's taking place in the macrocosm of the world. But He doesn't leave it there. This morning, you mentioned... Spurgeon? Spurgeon's Evening and Morning? Uh, Martin. I wish that he would have... Sorry, it's Morning and Evening is, is the title of the book. I wish that he would have titled it Evening and Morning. And the reason is because way back in Genesis 1, there was evening and there was morning day one. There was evening and there was morning day two. Evening and morning day three. In God's timing, the day doesn't end in darkness, it ends in light. And we wake up and we see the dawn and it gives us hope that noon is coming. And that's Isaiah's theology. He moves them into darkness. As it says in verse 30, Behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds, but light will shine again. I think that it's a hand that is So we're looking at verse 25. All for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. You notice that as we're looking at this at the passage at least in my ESV It doesn't let the words carry all the way to the end of the page. It breaks it up like it's poetry. And that suggests to me that we're looking at a a line, a uh, a pair, two lines that are in, um, that are a couplet joined together, and that the second line is unpacking the first line. So when it says, all this, for all this his anger has not turned away, that is, or and, his hand is stretched out still, I'd have to look a little bit more, but my initial thought is that it's saying that it's stretched out as a mighty uh, warrior against his rebels. So chapter 5 is this long song of the vineyard. And the the song is that I planted a garden and it looks more wild than anything, so what am I going to do? I'm not going to stop being a gardener. Instead, I'm going to burn it. And in chapter 5, it looks as though the last word is darkness. But then immediately, this is what we learn. Okay, on earth, it all looks downhill. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Sovereign One. It's not the name Yahweh, it's L-O-R-D in small letters, so that's the Sovereign One, the King, the Lord, the Master. I saw the Sovereign One seated on the throne. On earth, things are in chaos. Indeed, even the King died. But up in heaven, 
There is one still seated on the throne. He doesn't seem to be in the temple on earth because he sees someone that looks like a person. He sees someone that he can call the Lord who's actually seated on the throne. And then the train of his robe is filling, going room by room, through the palace or the temple. So it's translated in my ESV as a temple. The train of his robe filled the temple. It's the exact same word as a palace. So you think, usually when you think of a throne, throne room would be in a palace rather than in a temple. But they're exactly the same word. The temple is God's palace. But if it was the earthly temple, we would look in and we would see an Ark of the Covenant with the presence of God hovering over it in in fiery cloud. But that's not what he describes here. He sees the Lord seated on the throne. And then he actually sees in the vision the train of a robe. Now in the Gospel of John, what we are told by Jesus is that no one has ever seen the Father. So when I come to texts like this, and someone is looking up and seeing a vision of the living God seated on the throne as if he's a man, it it at least suggests to me the possibility that we have a pre-incarnate portrayal of Jesus. That when you see a vision of God, you're seeing the Son. Or when three men show up in Abraham's presence, and two of them go down and they're called angels, and then the third one stays with Abraham, and all of a sudden the fact that he was a man is set aside, and all of a sudden he just begins to talk, and in the narrative it just says, and Yahweh said, and Yahweh said to Abraham, and Yahweh said to Abraham. And it's this third character talking, and yet no one has seen the Father. It suggests to me that what you're seeing is a vision of the second person of the Trinity before he became a man. All the prophets from Samuel until this day, spoke of me. That's what Peter spoke of Jesus. That's what Peter says in Acts chapter 3. Every prophet spoke of Christ. And one way, I think, is what we see right here. In John chapter... I just had this thought. Let me see if I remember my verses right. Probably not. Here's John chapter 12. Just just listen. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from the crowd. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. I'll leave you hanging right there, because I just thought, I'll read this after I get through, read the first part of Isaiah. Okay. Above the one seated on the throne, I'm back in chapter 6, verse 2 of Isaiah. Above this one seated on the throne were seraphim, each had six wings, and with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and they, they were crying one to another, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. That's the word for hosts. Isaiah is seeing this with his eyes. He's hearing it with his ears. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. And then it says something very wild. The whole earth is filled with His glory. If I've read this right, Isaiah is not looking at the earthly temple. He's seeing what the earthly temple pointed to all along. Make on earth, God said to Moses, a picture of what you've seen that I've revealed to you, a picture of what I've revealed to you. That means he saw the real, and on earth is the model. But he sees the the Holy One seated on the throne, which suggests he's getting a vision not of the earthly model, but of the reality. 
But wherever that reality is, the holiness of God, the glory of God, reaches all the way down to Isaiah's sphere. Isaiah lives on earth, and the whole earth is filled with God's glory. But it takes Isaiah getting a vision of the heavenly throne room in order to be awed, to be moved, to be overcome. The glory of God has been all around him, but he didn't have eyes to see, and he didn't have ears to hear. But now he sees the king seated on the throne. He hears, holy, holy, holy. And he's caught. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips on the earth. He is unclean, Unclean lips, what comes out of the mouth, flows from the heart. And I'm not the only one. I'm dirty, and everybody around me is dirty. And yet, what is that? What are the implications? Where they are dirty is where the glory of God is. The very place where worship should be happening, people are cold to it. They don't see it. They don't hear it. So, God responds. In his brokenness, my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been taken with tongs from the altar. This has to be, according to Hebrews, not the earthly altar where pictures happen, but the heavenly altar where Jesus entered, where he, his sacrifice became Legitimate. It's from that altar that the tongs are brought. They touch his lips and he's purified. Verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom will go for us? And I said, I'm here. Send me. And then we stop right there and we say, Who wants to be a missionary? But Isaiah, what he got commissioned to do is so massively weighty. Look it. Here's what I want you to go and tell the people. Keep listening, but don't hear. Keep on seeing, but don't see. I want you, Isaiah, to make the heart of this people dull. Not responsive, but just dull, hard. Make their ears heavy so they can't hear. Their eyes blind so they can't see. That's what your mission is. To bring judgment on the people, lest they hear with their ears and see with their eyes and turn and be healed. This is not an easy word for Isaiah. So he asks God, how long do I have to give this message of judgment? To declare darkness rather than light. And God says, until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. How long, O Lord, until desolation comes upon Israel? Until a nation greater than them enters in and overcomes them, burns their home and kills their children. Keep proclaiming judgment, judgment. You like your pornography? Keep going after your pornography until you burn in hell. That's his mission. That's how he's preaching. You want to keep treating your spouse that way? With harsh words of anger? Treating your kids like they're animals rather than people? Showing misjudgment in your business practice? Keep going. Act that way. Looking at things you shouldn't look at. Listening to things you shouldn't listen to. How long, O Lord, do I have to preach this way? Until my judgment is complete. 
That's a hard mission. And Jesus actually comes in and says, in order to fulfill the word that God promised, that God proclaimed to Isaiah, this is why I speak in parables, so that in hearing they will not hear, so that in seeing they will not see. Sin is not only deserving of judgment for Israel, their sin was a judgment. God gave them over, as Paul says in Romans 1, to their debased mind. He gave them over to their immorality. For how long, O Lord? Until fire comes, and then once it comes, I'll bring it again. And it'll burn my garden down. But then the last word of verse of chapter 6, look at there. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, period, quotation marks, the holy offspring is its stump. The holy offspring is its stump. It's like it's all been boiled down, boiled down, and all that's left is one offspring, holy. Holy like God is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And there is one stump remaining that is displaying that holiness to the world. Now this message opens up the door then for these two units of judgment. Two units where Judah is judged and Israel is judged. But I want us to see something that's so beautiful at this point. The holy seed, the holy offspring is its stump. And then in chapter 7, we're going to hear that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. The holy offspring is its stump. But then turn with me, just turn a few pages over to chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is David's father. Out of that line, a shoot will rise. You chop off your poplar, and up comes twelve. A single shoot will rise out of the burning. Life will rise up. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall truly be in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he will begin to embody in himself what it means to be a man of God, what it means to be human. He will put on display the greatness of his God. He will fear God. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He is a God-honoring hedonist. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. He won't be brought in to the right or to the left by who's got the best money or who's got the best arguments. Who's got the greatest influence? Rather, he will decide what is true. He will do it justly. There's hope here if you've experienced great brokenness from others in your own life. We have a Savior who will work justice perfectly. With righteousness, He will judge the poor. He will decide with equity. For the meek of the earth, not the proud, not the haughty. No, all of those will have been brought down. But the meek will inherit the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's all it takes for Christ. One little word shall fell them. 
Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Do you hear the armor of God imagery? All throughout Isaiah, the Messiah is portrayed as one who is dressed for his task. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, appears to be going directly back to these texts in light of our identification in the Messiah Jesus and applying all of his armor to us. We walk in the same power that he walked in. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb in that day. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The child will lead the lion and the leopard. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw with the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Don't just jump over that. These are serpent images, and the serpent has been overcome. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, Garden of Eden imagery. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Fill the earth, multiply, subdue it, God had told Adam. Take my image to the ends of the earth. And now that's what somehow through the mission of the Messiah, it's going to happen. The glory of God will expand. And then in that day, notice what it says. The root of Jesse shall stand as a banner, as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, not just for the Jews. No, the nations will be gathering seeking to know this Messiah and His ways. All of this has been inaugurated, I believe, in the person of Jesus. We'll talk more about that as we walk through Isaiah. In that day, the Sovereign One will extend His hand yet a second time. Well, who will He draw? Not just the Jews, but now... Yes, the Jews were scattered in their exile. But well before the Jews were scattered, there was another scattering from Babylon. Seventy families shot out to the ends of the earth. And now God's mission always, through you, Abraham, the world will be blessed. This offspring will rise like a shoot from the ground. In the midst of a burned darkness, salvation will come through judgment. And now all of a sudden, the nations will be gathered in. Look at verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend His hand a second time to recover the remnant that remains of His people from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Ethiopia, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, the coastlands of the sea. Verse 16, there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of His people as there was for Israel. Hear that? As there was for Israel, so God will do for the rest through this ultimate Messiah whom He will raise up. Like He did for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. And then that signals chapter 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Yahweh, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away. God can be that for you today. No more angry. His wrath appeased. Comfort. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For Yahweh, Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Look at verse 2. Look at the little, in my Bible, it's a W, cross-reference. Where's that from? The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Where's that from? Exodus 15. This is the song of the sea. God defeats the Egyptians. He preserves His people. It's like new creation coming through the water. And now this, same way, 
new creation coming through the water, but it's no longer just the Egyptians. We've been delivered from a greater enemy, the serpent himself, and we sing the same song. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Hear that satisfaction imagery. No more drought. Wells flourishing with liquid that satisfies for eternity. You will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that he, His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. The horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. That's what Moses said. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Holy, holy, holy. Now it gets even more cool. So you start out, the judgment flows on the garden. Everything gets burned down to the stump, and yet a shoot rises from that stump. How is it that he will overcome all evil, establish his kingdom? Keep your finger in this early part of Isaiah and just turn to Isaiah 53, verse 2. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Who has believed what God has, what He has heard from us? To whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For He grew up like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. Yet we esteemed Him not. Yet this one has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by His stripes we are healed. He grew up like a young plant. So we start with catastrophe upon the garden that dries all life up out of the ground. Complete burning down to the stump. And when it was burned, it was burned again. And yet a shoot rises from which new creation comes. A new creation, which is at one level a return to Eden, and yet so much better. Because in the Garden of Eden, there was a serpent there who could go wild. And bring all that was wild from the outside into the garden. But now the children will play by the adder's den. The serpent has been overcome. And peace, seventh day Sabbath rest is realized again, all because of this single offspring. With that in mind, we go now to chapter 7. There's a problem in Israel in Isaiah's day. King Ahaz of Judah has a problem. And that problem is Syria to the north. He needs an answer. He needs help. Verse 10, the Lord says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. That is a sign that I will overcome. Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put Yahweh to the test. But it's not testing Yahweh if he asks you to do something. So, Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David. Notice who he's talking to. It's the whole house of David, not just a king Ahaz. O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore, the Sovereign One Himself will give you a sign. Verse 14, the you is plural. He's talking to the whole nation. And here it is. Behold, here's the sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In his days, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. I think that means the judgment has been so devastating, all that there's left to eat is curds and honey. I think. Verse 16, For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now we pause. This statement in in verse 16 really makes it sound like we're anticipating a single son in Ahaz's lifetime. Because Ahaz has a problem. And it's with Syria. It's specifically with two kings. Um, In the days of Ahaz, I'm in verse 1. Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. So there's Syria that's a problem, Israel's a problem. And then it says in verse 16, Before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So, which boy? Well, that four at the beginning of verse 16 suggests that it's the he who's eating the curds and the honey, and the he of verse 15 suggests that it's the Emmanuel who was born to the virgin. So in the days when the virgin conceives and bears a son, the name of the son shall be God with us. And in his lifetime, before he's grown, those two kings, the northern king of Israel and Syria, will no longer be a problem for you. That's how it reads at first glance. And what that would mean then is that Well, there was some kind of a partial fulfillment in Isaiah's day and then a greater fulfillment in the days of Christ. Look with me down at chapter 8, verse 3. So Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. The question is, how do we understand this virgin promise? And how do we understand that in his days, the kings of the north will no longer be a problem to Ahaz? Is this birth of the prophet to the prophet where he gets Maher Shalal Hashbaz? That's the name of his son. It's a great name. Is this somehow the Emmanuel? How are we to understand the virgin promise? Um, God goes on in chapter 8 to tell us how it is that the judgment, that, that the problem is going to be resolved for Ahaz. The answer will come through Assyria. So Assyria is that great beast from the north who will come down and overcome both Israel in the north and Syria. There's Assyria and Syria. And that's the answer. But as we move on and we think about what do we learn about Assyria, all of a sudden the way that Isaiah begins to talk about Assyria being the answer to Ahaz's problem, God will judge Israel. He'll judge Syria. The way he talks about this seems bigger than anything that Isaiah can happen in Isaiah's day. Turn with me over to chapter 10, verse 12. 
When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. So to Ahaz in chapter 7, he says, I'll raise up Assyria in order to conquer your thorn in the flesh, the northern kingdom, and Syria. I'll raise up Assyria to overcome them. And then God says, but I'm also not going to let Assyria get by with its wickedness. I'm going to overcome them. When the Lord has finished His work in Mount Zion, He will crush Assyria. But then notice verse 20. In that day, in the day that I crush Assyria... The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For through your peoples, Israel will be as the sand of the sea. That's Abrahamic promises. Only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Then we read in verse 33, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah. In that day, in that day when I put down Assyria, I'll raise up the Messiah. In that day that I put down Assyria... I'll bring, I'll restore my people Israel. And not only Israel, says the rest of chapter 11, but all the nations. And if we're putting it on a timeline, Jesus comes 500 years after Assyria. But it happens in that day, which all of a sudden makes me think that Isaiah is thinking bigger than just Assyria, but that Assyria is merely a picture of all evil. This manifestation of the day of judgment that's coming upon you is merely a portrayal of the ultimate judgment day that that the Messiah will overcome. Now, that I'm on target, I think, is suggested in chapter 9. Look there. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The the non-flourishing garden has turned into a flourishing garden. Because light has shone, the darkness has been dispersed, the clouds that were once there holding off the light have apparently all gone away. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian, as on the day of Midian. The enemy of God's people is no more by the time you get to chapter 9. For the yoke of his burden... Sorry, for every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire because, because the judgment is over because to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And when he describes the nature of this child's reign, it's much bigger than anything we could even think of in the Old Testament. And I think Matthew is reading it this way. That's why he can say, finally it's fulfilled. Listen to what it says. To us a child is born. A son is given. It has to be a male. Because in Genesis 3.15 it said, He will crush the head of the serpent. We're looking for a king. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. He will carry Everything, all authority will be His. It will be bore by Him, lifted up. And He will have a name that is above every name. His name shall be called Pella, 
Pella is a noun meaning wonder. It's the same word that God said to Sarah in Genesis 18, is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too Pella, wonderful, miraculous for me? You need guidance through your brokenness, through your darkness. We have a wonder of a counselor. One who can guide through the roughest of sea. He is a wonder of a counselor. He is an everlasting Father. In Isaiah 61, God is called the Father. Did I just jump one? I did. Mighty God. If you were to just hop over to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, Yahweh is called Mighty God. But now the Son, this King, His title is Mighty God. Nothing can stop Yahweh, therefore nothing can stop this King. He is that strong and that able. My brother-in-law, who's not a believer, the Lord has opened up his heart to dialogue with me as he and his wife go through another miscarriage. Brokenness in his soul. And he, he just he wants to get back to normal. He just wants things to be happy again. Those were his words. And he doesn't know how to help his wife. And yesterday I wrote him and I just said, my solace in the midst of desperation is that I have a God who is still on the throne. One who permits evil to come about in order to show His power in bringing people out of it or His power in carrying people through it. He is mighty God. And what's amazing is this is the title that's being given to a king, a child. Born and placed in a manger, contrary to all the wisdom of man. He is mighty. He can be mighty for you. Everlasting Father. So in Isaiah 63, 16, Yahweh is called the Father in this book. But now this one is somehow called the Father. Very likely in this image of um, authority. Oversight. And it's everlasting. In Psalm 72, David passes on the baton to his son Solomon. And prophetically, he looks through Solomon and says, the king that rises will have an everlasting throne. That's who we're talking about here. Someone who will never fail you because his throne will never stop. The hope of the nations because... He's always on the throne, and He will never stop being on the throne for you. He is an everlasting Father. And then, overcoming all anxiety, all fear, all angst, all turmoil, He is the Prince of Peace. This is so much bigger than anything that ever happened in the Old Testament. And that suggests to me that even Isaiah is looking through these figures that some might want to pinpoint and say, oh, well, this was fulfilled with him. This was fulfilled with him. And no, never until the Son of God rises. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We celebrate Christmas only, only because Resurrection Sunday will come. The one born of a virgin through a miracle birth of God. Untainted by the long line stretching back to Adam. Only two people created under that miraculous hand of God. Adam without agency. Adam and Jesus. Jesus is there untainted. He grows in wisdom and stature. He walks the way of wisdom the way of obedience, even to the point of death, death on the cross. And then where I anticipate Pastor Jason is going next week, he rises and ascends on high and receives the name that is above every name. 
a quotation right out of Isaiah, pointed on Yahweh. Jesus receives the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess He is Lord. That is our God. That is our hope. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. May we not forget it, and may we receive the comfort that we need and that our loved ones need in the midst of a very dark world. But it's dawn. And when we see the dawn, if we never had hope for noon, we might get very discouraged that it's lingering night. But use the dawn to fuel your hope in noon. The sun is rising. It's already broke the horizon. The light is shown. The darkness is fleeing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I praise you for your faithfulness and your kindness to us in Jesus. Thank you that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you that he is the wonder of a counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and that it is God with us that we meet when we meet Jesus. Unchanging, unswerving, unrelenting, and all-powerful working for us in Christ. We praise you, Lord. Be exalted in our souls and overcome our own anxieties, our own fears, our own worries, and then help us be agents through which you can love those who are broken around us, who are living in darkness and need light. We move out of this room with massive hope because you are God and you are on the throne. We trust in you this day a kingdom that is unshakable and that we are a part of. For the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.